0: For the rest of us, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3. The team up here is going to read verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray for Pastor Matt as he comes and brings us the word.
1: Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire it did not burn up. So Moses thought,
0: I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up.
1: When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush,
0: Moses, Moses.
1: And Moses said,
0: Here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground.
1: And then he said,
0: I am the God of your father, the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob
1: at this moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at god then the lord said
0: i have indeed seen the misery of my people in egypt i have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and i am concerned about their suffering so i have come down to rescue them from the hand of the egyptians and to bring them up Out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go; I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We know that you speak the truth through it, and you instruct us in it. Lord, we pray at this time for Pastor Matt as he brings the word to us. We pray that your spirit would rest upon him, and as he opens the word to us and speaks of the things you've told him over the past week, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be ready to listen and more importantly ready to obey we pray for our time together now lord and we just ask that you would bless it and lead us to you in your name we pray amen,
2: amen. thank you guys very much uh, today we continue a sermon series through the book of exodus uh, we've been in chapter one and chapter two chapter one we saw uh, the threat of egypt both uh, slavery in Egypt for God's people, but then also then the slaughter that was planned and implemented by Egypt. And yet God protects, and not only protects Israel, but they are flourishing. There is fruitfulness. And then in Exodus 2 last week, we saw God's preservation of this deliverer, Moses. And we also saw Moses's early attempts to bring deliverance to fail Which I think is a good thing because eventually at the end of chapter 2, it says, Moses, he's a foreigner, he is lost, he is in the wilderness. And yet God hears, it says at the end of chapter 2, the groans and the cries of his people, and he is about to respond. The about to respond is 40 years later, which is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 3. Those who don't know me, I'm Pastor Matt. And I started pastoring as a youth pastor when I was 22, you know, after being involved in high school and college ministry and things like that. And I would say that in over 15, 16 years of ministry, the two words that cut my heart the most is when someone says, I'm done. And I've heard people say that with regard to their marriage. I've heard people say that with regard to walking with God. They say I'm done. Now, usually it doesn't happen overnight. In fact, almost every time it is a very—it's a slow fade. Uh, usually a series of compromises, a series of poor choices, a series of, um, you know, just going in neutral. It turns out that neutral slows you down. And then they say, "I'm done." I've seen it with you know middle school, high school, college kids. They go through maybe a semester. They go on a conference and they come back and they're just on fire for the Lord God. Their, their Bible has just come alive to them and they're walking and they're growing and then they fall back into old patterns with old friends and the slow fade happens and then they say it or live the expression, I'm done. I've seen people uh, face addictions and have, you know, a long season of success, six months, year, two years, and then the slow fade. And then the "I'm done. I can't do this. This is impossible. Parents do it. <laughs> People who've wanted to be parents for years or decades, they pray to have kids, but then the fears come and the doubts grow. And it might be when they're 1, or it might be when they're 11, or it might be when they're 21, and the parents have a slow faith. They disengage. They're afraid. What I'm, I'm watching God do in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, it is his patient but intentional work to make sure that Moses knows that what he is being called to and the places that he is commissioned to go, it will be okay because God will ensure the victory. In fact, the expression, I quit and I'm done, I think should be just cut out from a Christian's mouth. It's just not true. (laughs) Or it is true that you can't, but that's okay because God can. So let's look at this text. This is, I believe, how God can keep us fearless and engaged in our calling or how God can keep us fearless and engaged in whatever God has commanded us to do. And so the first thing I want us to see here, beginning in Exodus chapter three, on how we're going to be engaged, how we're going to stay fearless, and where God has called us, or what He has called us to do, is this: God will draw near to us, with, wo- with, with both intimacy and with holiness. This is how it'll be possible. He draws near to us with both intimacy and holiness. So this is Moses. Just picture Moses. Moses is 80 years old. He has got to be slightly bent over by now. His feet hurt. This is long before the days of knee replacements, right? He's not in good shape. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there, the angel of the Lord, he appears to him and inflames a fire from within a bush. This idea of the bush, the fiery bush, is... It's repeated several different times in Scripture. I don't think we can meditate on it long enough, but let's try. Right. It's a common bush. It's a thorny shrub in the desert. On one hand, this is very, a very common sight that you would see wandering in the wilderness. And yet, this common bush has now uh, encased in unquenchable fire. So what we're seeing is a common theme throughout the Bible is this recurrence of something common now infused with something holy. Something seemingly natural covered in supernatural. It says that Moses saw that the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Verse 3, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? And when, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him, from within the bush, Moses, Moses, And Moses said, "Here I am." So the bush is God coming intimately to be with Moses, but before Moses should think this is just a you know, a normal day, God speaks and says, "Moses, you are on holy ground." And so you have this idea of both intimacy and holiness, uh, two big theological, you know. Two dollar words are imminence and transcendence. The idea of God's imminence is that God is near us, but transcendence means he's also distinct from us or far from us. So God can be both near his people and far from his people. And this is what God is communicating to Moses in this event right here. I am drawing near to you, but don't think this is an everyday affair. Don't think I'm an everyday God. Don't think you can treat me lightly. Take off your shoes. And then he goes on, verse five. God says, Don't come any closer. Take your sandals for the place where you're staying is holy ground. And then he said he said, I am the God of your father. So again, now this holy, majestic God speaking from a flaming bush, announces again intimacy. I'm the God of your father. That's who I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. But then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. Now again, this is God's transcendence, his holiness, his uniqueness. This God who is in the heavens sees what's going on in Egypt. He hears the cries of his people He's above this. He sees what's going on, and yet, and yet he says he has compassion. And, he's, and then it says, so in verse 8, or at the end of verse 7, I'm concerned about their suffering, and so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land. So this transcendent God is now going to come down and be with his people to perform a rescue mission, and he's going to bring them out of the land He's going to take him to somewhere good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds sticky. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, some of you are familiar with this, but this is not the first time God has said he was going to do this. So if you have uh, your own Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 15. I don't know how well Moses had been instructed in what God had said previously to those who had walked with God, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but incidentally, or not incidentally as so, as so has it in the Bible, God had actually said everything that had transpired up to this point in history was planned so that Moses could be assured everything that's going to come subsequently also planned. Genesis 15, verse 13, God speaking to Abraham 500 some years before the time of Moses, the Lord says to Abraham, "'Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions.'" You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation of your descendants, uh, they will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then in verse 17, a strange event happens, but it turns out to be an amazing promise, because it says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The two pieces were... Were animal carcasses severed, which was a covenant-making ceremony that generally two people would walk through and to say, hey, we're, 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 building, we're making a contract here. We're going to walk through this bloody mess of carcasses to symbolize if either of us violate the covenant, we will be ripped to shreds like these animal carcasses. What's amazing about this is only God goes between the carcasses which means God is obligating himself and not obligating Abraham to make sure that this promise is fulfilled. God's taking it all. And if anyone fails, I'll pay the punishment. This is pointing to the cross. And it says, verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is what God's promised. And now in Exodus chapter 3, he's just picking up with Moses and saying, Oh, by the way, it's time for me to do that. I have drawn near to you, and yet I am different from you. I can appear as a bush, but it's a fiery bush. God draws near with his intimacy and his holiness because he's trying to invite us to believe that he can accomplish in us what he has promised. Um, you know, The whole ministry of Jesus is this back and forth between God revealing himself as this in, in, imminent, close, near God, and also this transcendent God not like us. One of those incidences is recorded in Luke chapter 5, when uh, Jesus shows up one day after some of the early disciples have had a long night fishing. Uh, this story is picked up here in uh, Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Which means the day is over. They're wrapping things up. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put a little, just let's go a little bit out from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, wouldn't you like that, fisherman? As soon as the thing hit the water, no one fishes like this but Jesus. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Peter saw this, now this is key, when Peter saw this, Peter had fished a lot But when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I mean, this day, Jesus just shows up. He's drawing near to his disciples, but he does something so remarkable that Peter, in a flash, gets an x-ray of his soul, and he says, I am not holy. I am not right with God. Only God could do something like this, and he is scared to death. Verse 9 says, His companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. But look what Jesus says in verse 10. He says to Simon Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. Interestingly, that for Jesus, he draws near to Peter in intimacy and in holiness. And then he's going he's to send Peter out on mission. That's what he's doing with Moses here. He's drawing near to Moses, both with intimacy and holiness. But it's to send him out on a mission. And it's very clear right there at the end of uh, this section, verse, chapter 3, verse 10. So now go, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. To bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses has been selected for a task, and he's called to go. And again, people in this room, each of you have been called to a task or tasks. In fact, sometimes people will ask me every now and again, what's your calling? And I don't think that's probably an accurate way of saying it. I say, what are your callings? Plural, right? I'm married to Carrie. I have a calling as a husband. I'm a father to Samuel the wise, Caleb the bold, Elias the true, and Charity the kind. It's a calling. I'm called to serve this church. I'm a citizen. I'm a neighbor. I'm a son. I'm a brother. In every calling that I've been sent to, I am ill-prepared and ill-equipped. Similar with you. God places you, in and wherever he puts you, you are, you're not up to the task. And so you're probably going to respond like I do and how Moses does here in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? He's 80 years old. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years. I'm guessing in his mind he's saying what I've heard other people say. I'm a has-been or I never was. Or I'm too late. It's too late. Send someone else. He's a washed-up, weary shepherd. And God says, go to a very powerful nation, to a very powerful ruler, to release a people. A modern preacher named Tony Merida uh, likens it to this. This would be sort of like a car mechanic declaring war on Canada. Imagine a guy in coveralls carrying a wrench up to the Canadian president saying, Let everybody go. God's response is telling. Let's first look at what God doesn't say. God doesn't put on his Mr. Rogers sweater and say, It's because you're special, Moses. You've got skills, brother. You can do this. God does not say that. In fact, he says something quite the contrary. God says, I will be with you. I. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, when you've brought them out, you will worship God. You will worship me on this mountain. In effect, God is saying, don't look at yourself. Look at me. Imagine a third-grade Parks and Recreation basketball team from Marion, Iowa, somehow gets in a tournament, and they have to play the greatest basketball team in the state. And they look at their coach, and they're like, how are we going to win? Who are we? And the coach says something like this. Hi, I am six foot eight, and I weigh 250 pounds, and I'm going to play the entire game. I'm going to block every single shot they take, and I'm going to score 100 points, and then we're all going to go to Happy Joe's, and I'm going to pay for the pizza and for all your silly games, and you're going to thank me the whole time. That's what's going on here. You're okay. I'm going with you. And then the kids say, who are you? And he says, I'm LeBron James. Six foot eight, 250 pounds, aka King James. (laughs) Because that's what Moses does. After he has this little encounter, he says, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, Well, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Who are you? This is a great question, because Moses is not an idiot. Travels, you know, whatever it is, like 250 miles back to Egypt. We're gonna take over. We're gonna take on Pharaoh, and God's gonna let us go. Well, how do you know? Well, I heard this voice from a bush. It's probably wise that he gets a little more backstory. I'm pretty sure if people say I heard a talking bush, not a lot of followers. And God's gonna answer this. Again, how, how, do we, how, do we, how are we fearless and engaged? How does Moses need to be fearless and engaged? He needs to recognize God's intimacy and holiness. The second thing is God, he promises his presence. And the third thing, in order for us to be fearless and engaged, is God reveals his name. His name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Uh, This is where we get a a little fuller definition, but also the idea that God is revealing himself as Yahweh. That's a Hebrew expression that means something like this. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Now, it's important to know that... um, At first, this answer has to be a bit puzzling because you can actually go all the way back to like Genesis chapter 4 when Seth, one of the children of Adam and Eve, are talking to God under the name Yahweh. So they kind of, they know this name, they've heard this label, this handle for God is not unknown. So when he says he's giving his name, it's not this new name, but it's, you're going to know him in a new way. It'd be like if I showed up some Sunday here, and all of a sudden you found out I was an amazing illusionist, and I could do tricks and make people disappear. You would, you would have known me as Matt Proctor, but now you're going to walk away going, we never knew that about Matt Proctor. Right? God is saying, I want you to know me like you've never known me before. Yes, you've maybe known the handle Yahweh, which in our English Bibles is usually... Four capital letters, L-O-R-D. But now you're going to know me like you have never, ever known me before. And you get a sense of who I am is with what this. (laughs) Moses is only asked, who are you? And then God's going to go on this monologue for quite a long time about who is he. Verse 15, God says to Moses. So he's still answering Moses' question. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeared to me and said, I've watched over you. I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. My guess is some people in Egypt didn't know that Yahweh could see them and that he was concerned with them for 400 years. They need to know that. He is aware. Verse 17. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel needs to know this Lord is going to keep his promises. Yahweh keeps his word. The elders of Israel will listen to you. What a promise. Then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. and We want to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now, we talked about this briefly at small group or after small group last week. This is going to reveal how hard Pharaoh's heart heart is, is that he's not even going to let the Israelites take a three-day getaway. And so eventually Moses says, okay, we'll just leave forever then. Verse 19, I know, this is God, I know that the king of Egypt is not going to let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'm going to stretch out my hand, I'm going to strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God goes on. This is who I am. I will make the Egyptians favorable, favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Um, there was a pastor... I believe in the Chicago area, named A.W. Tozer, who once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what God wants for the people of Israel and for the people of Moses, when you hear the name Yahweh, you think of a God who sees, who delivers, who keeps his promises. This is Yahweh. This is his identity when you go back to verse 14, one of the first things that God wants them to know is, I am who I am. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? It's, it's the idea that God is an independent God who, ha, who is and was and will always be. He, everything else in creation is dependent on God. We are creatures, He is creator. He always was, he always is. Um, Those of you who like big theological words, there's a term called aseity. You can write this one down. Uh, Those of you who like good tools, there's a a website called gotquestions.org. I stole this from them. This is what the aseity of God is. The aseity of God is his attribute of independent self-existence. God is the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. He is the source of all things, the one who originates everything and who sustains everything that exists. The the aseity of God means that he is the one in whom all other things find their source, existence, and continuance. He is the ever-present power that sustains all life. There is no other source of life and none other like him. Isaiah 46.9, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. The rest of the stuff that you see here at the end of Exodus chapter 3 are this. God has a flawless plan. He knows exactly what needs to happen, what will happen. He knows every turn, every twist, and he ensures complete victory so that there is no Israelite blood shed. And the victory is so colossal. At the end, women plunder Egypt. This isn't a Viking horde plundering a village. This is women getting 400 years of back pay by just knocking on doors. What are you going to give me? Everything. Thank you. When God, this is God completing the victory. Now know that the last thing that he does to complete the victory is there has to be the death of an innocent lamb. But God is going to ensure victory because he is God. Remember, God is doing all this so that people will know him as the Lord, as Yahweh. Despite you know, man's, or we could use culture's, attempt to snuff out this God, he is known. Hollywood makes movies about this God. We know the story because God has developed and proven himself in history to be the God who keeps his promises, that he really is Yahweh. And all of these things, though, all that he is revealing thus far from Moses is so that he will just go. Be engaged in what I have called you to do. Go. We're going to come back next week and look at, more of this conversation, but I want us to think a little bit about, thus far in Exodus 3, what would be our response? What are we supposed to be getting out of this passage? And I'm, I'm going to encourage us to think of it in two ways. I want, God wants us to uh, respond to him with our heart. Th- that is, he wants to capture our hearts, wants us, to be, wants us to really love him and to trust him. But notice the overflow is then for it to come out in our lives. To actually fulfill what God has called us to do. God wants us to respond to him. God wants us to respond to him rightly. God wants us to know his name and who he really is. Uh, Later in Isaiah chapter 43, you can just write the reference and check on it, verses 18 through 19. God says that he's going to eventually do something so new Something so marvelous, you'll forget about the things of the past. This amazing exodus and the plagues and Moses, something is going to happen that's going to make that pale in comparison. Interestingly, uh, that's what John talked about in the passage that uh, Tony read during worship. If you turn to John chapter 1, well, I'll start in verse 14. It's talking about when Jesus comes, what's going to happen? Verse 14 is where it says, the Word, Jesus, he's going to become flesh, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Word. He becomes flesh. He makes his dwelling among us. And what happens? We're going to see his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. But notice what it says down in verse 17. Something happens. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So God makes himself known through Moses, the the demonstration of his character in the Exodus, the giving of the law. But the new thing that's going to happen that's going to make the other thing pale in comparison is the arrival of the Son of God, so that we can know God's glory. This is why when Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that when God reveals his glory in the Son, who though in the nature of God did not consider equality with God, made himself nothing, took the nature of a servant, took on human appearance, hummed himself, became obedient even unto death, it says, therefore God gave Jesus the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess. And so God's trying to draw us ultimately to respond to Jesus with our heart, to give him our lives. In John 8, it records a time when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus likens himself, says, I'm Yahweh. And the crowd's knew because the next verse says, They picked up stones to kill him. When someone claims to be God, you either roll your eyes, or you pick up a rock. But, As Tim Keller, uh, I appreciate what Tim wrote back in 2016 about Jesus. Tim Keller writes this, In the whole history of the world, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. When Jesus comes to reveal who he is, the name of God, who God is, his reputation, his identity, he calls people and says, I am. And many believe. Not all, but many. And who is Jesus? I mean, Jesus, you know, take this, remember this common shrub marked with holiness? I mean, it's pointing forward to this God-man who has a body like us, and yet he's fully God fully God and fully man, so that we would have to reckon with who this God is and respond with our hearts and our lives. So let me recall a famous quote, maybe the most famous quote by C.S. Lewis, regarding we need to respond to Jesus. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. At some point, everyone in this room if not today, another day. You have to reckon with who is Jesus, the God who has revealed himself, yes, in the pages of Exodus, but ultimately in the personal work of Jesus. And we're supposed to respond with our hearts. Moses needed to get to a place where he trusted this God. But then should move us out to respond with our lives. So let me just give you a prayer that St. Augustine prayed to move, it, move out in our lives. St. Augustine taught us to pray, give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do as you will. This is a prayer I encourage you to maybe adopt this week. Give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do as you will. The second part of this prayer is to get to a place where we let God be God, and make make and stake claims on our life. That he has authority over every, leave the quote up, please. He has the authority over every square inch of the universe and every square inch of my life, that he can command what he will. And so we trust him with what he has to say about parenting and marriage and purity and godliness and lying and greed, that, Lord, you command as you will because you are God. But the second part of the prayer, or the the first part of the prayer, it says, but give me to do, give me the grace to do as you command. That's getting to the point where we say, I can't do this. And your grace is your unmerited favor, your divine strength that will sustain me and allow me to be faithful to the place that you have called me and to obey the commands that you have given me. This is where God wants us to get, where we just let him be God. But because he's God, we trust him to supply what he's asked of us. Give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. But remember, how did God work with Moses? It's the same way he will work with us. He draws near to us in holiness and intimacy. He's going to grant us victory through his presence. And God's going to reveal himself to you. He reveals himself through the word, reveals himself through the corporate gathering of God's people, but he reveals himself so that then we would go out and obey him, fearless and engaged wherever God has called us. When Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 8, just marveling at what God has accomplished in Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life, he says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Like We can engage. We can be faithful. God can do what he has commanded us to do. Well, I want to move to the supper. And the reason we, we come to this supper time and time again, it, it's so myriad. There's so many reasons. But today I pray that as you think about this supper, you think about the cross, right? What is the cross? The cross is God's intimacy toward us and his holiness displayed. justice against sin but so that he can save his people this is transcendence and imminence this is this is God drawing near to his people but revealing his glory so I pray that as we come to the meal uh, especially for those uh, who maybe you've done this often right I just pray that the meal thinking about the blood and the body of Christ it would woo your hearts to Christ again God has revealed himself God has come to save his people And on the back end of this, though, it is supposed to send us out spiritually fed, to be secure in his intimacy, send out knowing his holiness and excited to reveal his name to the world. That's what this meal is here for. If you've never joined us in the supper, let me just give you a few instructions. Uh, First, uh, this meal is for anyone who professes Christ and is walking in relationship with him and is in a good relationship with other believers we pray that you just come and feast with us. If you haven't trusted Christ, you're not walking with him, we just ask you to not uh, take the bread and the cup today and just maybe even consider the claims of Christ over the next week. We grab, we pick up uh, the elements uh, together, and then we sit and we receive them together. So we come up the front aisles, uh, come down the front aisles, and then through the side aisles to pick them up. Uh, and we just pray that as you... Uh, pick up a cup and pick up the bread that you would just meditate on the body and blood of Christ given for you. So let me pray and then we will collect the elements. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that you are a God who has revealed himself in history, real space, real time. This is not some, some God in some long lost legend that doesn't matter, but a God who reveals himself in history, who saves people, calls people, but you're also the God that sustains his people to do the work. And I pray that none of us would leave here today overconfident in ourselves, but rather confident in the God who goes with his people, the God who comes to his people, the God who reveals himself to his people. And Lord, pray that this meal would uh, just remind us of all these things and more that have happened through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So feed us now through your meal. In Christ's name, amen.